Hello and welcome, welcome and hello. You are listening to another episode of CC Extra. Now my voice may be a bit unfamiliar to you, so let me start with a brief introduction if I may. I'm Caleb J. Ross, I'm a YouTuber at the Burning Books video game channel, which is great by the way. I'm also co-host of Masters of Unlocking, a video game podcast, which is also great by the way. And of course, I am a Cartridge Club member, which is also great. And I don't have to say by the way, because you know that. Uh, You can find links to all of these places and others at calebjross.com. But enough about me, I've got something special for you today, so let's get right into it. I'm Caleb, and in my never-ending quest to help you love video games even more, I've invited Patrick Hickey Jr. to the podcast to talk about his book, The Minds Behind the Games, interviews with cult and classic video game developers published by McFarlane. Now, Patrick joins me with a healthy list of bona fides, including uh, as a full-time lecturer of English and the assistant director of the journalism program at Kingsborough Community College in Brooklyn, New York, the founder and editor-in-chief of ReviewFix.com. He's a former editor, a news editor at NBC Local Integrated Media, and a former national video games writer at Examiner.com. Thank you so much, Patrick, for uh, taking the time out to talk with me here. I know it's late, a little later where you are right now. Yeah, it's a little late, but it, this is uh, this is worth it. You're a good guy, and uh, I'd love to uh, discuss the book. Oh, man, I can't wait to do something that makes me objectively not a good guy so that you, <laughs> by proxy, are now a horrible person. Uh, so this book you've written, um, for, uh, on a, uh, from, a, from a service level, it's, it's a book of interviews, as the subtitle would suggest, but uh, not just games that a lot of people would think uh, a, a journalist would write about. I mean, this isn't a collection of the best games. It's not a collection of the worst games. It's sort of a collection of uh, games that kind of map my childhood, which is weird. But at the same time, I think it feels like a, a collection of games that probably map your childhood a bit. We've got like Mutant League Football and Max Payne and uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Boy Does Blob, and on and on and on and on. I think 30 or so, some get 36 or so, something in there. Talk a little bit about what readers should expect from a book like this. Okay, so um, in terms of how I came up with the games for this book, um, I I had decided I was 30 years old, um, and I wanted to do something really special before my daughter was born. Um, By the time my dad was 33 years old, he had twin uh, 12-year-old boys. So it's kind of like that Kevin Costner movie, you know, uh, Field of Dreams. He's like, oh, when my dad was my age, he was already ancient, you know, and... uh, I just I didn't want to be that guy that looked at his kids and was like, oh, you know what? I could have did this and I could have did that, but I had you, you know. And uh, my dad wasn't like that. My dad was a great dad and stuff like that, but um, just a super smart guy that I always felt like could have done so much more, you know. So uh, I didn't want to be that person. So um, I am the assistant director of the journalism program at Kingsborough Community College in Brooklyn, New York, like you said. I wanted to uh, continue to develop the journalism program in the school. And I had went to the director of the program and I was like, let's create a multimedia journalism course. And he's like, nah, you know, it's not in the plans. And I was like, well, you know, like I'm really bored and you know, I'm on my, I'm on like, you know, tenure track basically. I'm super young. I've, I've been, I've been there for over 12 years now. So it's like, I'm kind of looking at this position that I love that I want to work there for the rest of my life. But this is like the rest of your life is like plotted out before you, you know, and it's kind of scary, you know, like you could just sit back and do this one job the rest of your life and and you'll be fine. That's boring. You know, like who wants to do that? You know, so uh, he was against like adding the extra class. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write a book. So he was like, you know what? Go write a book. 
So then I went home and I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to write a book. And she's like, I don't want to hear it. And I'm like, what? She goes, I want to see you do it. Like, what do you want to write a book about? And I'm like, I want to write a book book about video games. And the thing is, uh, I've been running Review Fix for about nine years. I interview indie devs and, you know, AAA devs all the time. Like, I've interviewed hundreds of them. And I really love getting to what inspired games. Like, how was this game born, you know? Um, so... I just came up with this idea of doing like an interview anthology. And one of the other deciding factors was Brett Weiss's book, uh, The Top 100 Video Games, 1977 to 1987. So I just want to say for the record that I hate, I hate, and hate is a very strong word, and I've said it twice already, but I'll say it one more time. I hate reference books. Like these books that just list every single game, and there's like a paragraph, and then, then they get to the next one. They're cash cows. You know, people that that don't know a lot about the industry, they'll buy them because they're super big and there's lots of pictures, but they're not really telling you anything that you can't find out on the internet. So Brett Weiss's book, um, The 100 Best Video Games, 1977 to 1987, is a reference book, but it's a freaking awesome reference book because, like, each each game wasn't relegated to just a page. And he's he's been a journalist for 25 years, and, and he grew up during, like, the Atari era. So there were games in there that I had never even heard of. Like, there was a lot of objectivity in the book. It was really solid. So reading that, reviewing that, interviewing Brett, I'm like, you know what? I can do something like this, but I could do it my way as, you know, interviewing the developers, finding them and interviewing them. So I figured I would do like a coffee table book, like 12 to 15 games, lots of pictures, make it really fun. So I reached out to, uh, before I reached out to any developers, I went in my man cave and I started looking through all of my games and for games that like really affected me as a gamer. And uh, also to games that I felt like people didn't play or games that people may have forgotten about. Um, or games that got bad raps like E.T. and Night Trap. You know, um, I wanted it to be really eclectic and really different. Um, Jason Schreer's book, you know, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels is great. It's an awesome book. It's well-reported. You know, he's a news editor at Kotaku. You would expect nothing less. But they're all sexy-named games, even like the indie games. You know, Stardew Valley. You know, like, that's that's a big indie game now. Like, it's made a lot of money. I, I wanted to have games in there that... People would go, what? That's a game? Like I had um, – I was interviewed by Cody Go um, from uh, WGN Radio, and uh, he fell in love with the Pro Wrestling X chapter because he thought it was like an NES game that he missed. Like when he saw Pro Wrestling X, he thought it was an NES game. When he read that, it's basically been this ongoing development for 12 years that's still not finished, he was like blown away. He was like, I would have never even heard of this game if it wasn't for this book. And that's the purpose. Like, you know, games that we've, that we've loved growing up, games that we might've missed games that we don't know. All of, I wanted all of those things in, uh, in one. So, um, I, I, uh, contacted like five or six developers to start. So like Michael Menheim, mutant league football, um, Gary kitchen, who did boy in his blob with David crane, um, I'm trying to think of who else, uh, Greg Johnson, who did Toe Jam and Earl and John Van Keegan, who did, uh, King's Bounty. So I emailed all six of them and I'm like, if three get back to me, then maybe I'll have enough to like send a pitch out to publisher and say like, Oh, well I've got to start, you know? Um, all six got back to me within like a week and I'm like, Oh man, like we're like whole, and one, one of the other people I forgot to was uh, Howard Scott Warshaw who who's done Yars Revenge and ET. So I'm like, 
wow, all six said, yes, this is destiny. Like this has to happen. So, um, about a month later, I had four out of the six chapters written, and I sent it to McFarlane, and three days later, they answered me. I was not expecting an answer back for, like, months, you know? And three days later, they contacted me, and they're like, we're totally interested in this. However, um, what you're pitching sounds good, but, like, the book has to be at least 75,000 words. So, like, at, if, if each of the chapters is this length, you're going to need, like, at least 25 games. So I'm like, oh, my God, this ended up becoming it was going to be so more work. And then I was like, you know what? Sure. And then by the end of it, I had 36 games. So um, all all of the changes McFarlane wanted me to make, I think, made a much better book than I originally expected it to. So to answer your question, like um, I wanted games that affected me as a kid. Some of those some of the games featured like Super Battle Tank and Wonder Boy and Monsterland and King's Bounty. Those are in there because like. I used to watch my dad play them all the time, and those were like the first experiences I had with like um, strategy games and and uh, like war games and like my all the stuff my dad was into. Like I didn't necessarily connect with until I started playing the video games based on those things. Um, so it, it, you're you're absolutely right. You said that a lot of these games like were kind of like cornerstones of your childhood, and I'm I'm 35 now, so. So yeah, it's that, and then at the same time too, there's indie games in there that are you know much more recent, like you know five years old. So I wanted it to be like this could be a book that um, your girlfriend or your wife would read, so then she could have a conversation with you about video games, and you would go, wait, what? You know, and all of the chapters you can read each chapter in about ten fifteen minutes. Um, Another podcaster that uh, interviewed me a couple weeks ago, he said he took it to the beach with him and like he read it in like three or four hours. And I was like, wow. I'm like, that's what he was like, dude, I was just into it. And it's like, by the time I was done with like a chapter, I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to stop. I'm going to go in the water. I'm going to eat something. And I'm like, no, 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 I'll read one more chapter. So it's like, that's kind of like what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be a book that you can read on the bus or the train, like really accessible. Um, my nephew is 15 now and I don't think he would have a problem reading this at all. My nephew, my other nephew, that's nine. I think he could read most of it. You know, I don't think there's like highfalutin language and stuff like that. I wanted it to be super accessible, but super informative and super entertaining and fun. I wanted each chapter to kind of have like their own tone and stuff like that. And I, I think I succeeded. I think so, too. I think so, too. Uh, and you mentioned a couple of things, in the, uh, quite a few things in there I definitely want to touch on. But um, I'll start with maybe the Blood, Sweat, and Pixels comparison. Um, the difference that you mentioned is uh, his his collection of, of games were sort of higher profile games. Um, and I wonder if, if during your research and during your interviews, were you ever worried that maybe there wouldn't be a story to tell behind these games? Because you... you this isn't just a transcript. This isn't just a list of transcripted interviews, which I will admit that was kind of my fear when I first kind of learned about the book. Um, I didn't necessarily want to read just you know a, a list of of back and forth interviews, and so that you you add a lot of context to it, which which I think speaks to your your skill as a writer that you were able to sort of. If the story wasn't there, maybe extract the story. But I'm wondering if you know Jason Schreier. He's he's he he he's an editor for a very large video game magazine. Imagine all of the all of the games he didn't didn't really dig into, right? So these are probably the ones that had the story associated with them. Were you ever worried that there just wouldn't be a story associated with any of these games? Um, I'm going to tell you right off the bat that, like, uh, I am an annoying son of a bitch. <laughs> like, when I have to interview somebody, um, I love to interview people. Um, 
I don't stop until I get a story. Mm. You know, it's like I teach the subject. So it's like uh, I have students go, oh, well, like, you know, one of the assignments is they have to interview another professor, like in the school for the school newspaper, whatever. And they'll go, oh, well, you know, the professor was boring. He didn't have anything interesting to say. And I'm like, no, you're boring. You didn't do your research. You didn't connect with this person in any way, shape or form. So it's like I didn't stop with any of these people until I got what I needed, you know, like, um, emails, Skypes, phone calls, like back and forth, exchanging 70, 80 emails until I got what I needed. (laughs) Um, yeah. So it's like, I, I never had the, I never had the feeling with any of these games that like, I wouldn't be able to get a story. I just felt like I had to spend enough time with them. And some of them, some of them, it was a lot easier because Mm -hmm. they wanted to tell their story. And then, with some of them, it was like, um, I'll give you an example. Um, so, um, Wasteland, which is basically the father to the Fallout series. Um, Brian Fargo, who is the founder of Interplay, is an amazing guy. He answered my pitch on Christmas Eve, wow. like two, 2016. He was like, oh, I'd love to talk to you. And I literally, like, jumped up in the air. And I was like, yeah. Oh, I felt like, you know, at the end of Breakfast Club. Like, I had my arm <laughs> up in the air, you know. And um, he gave me amazing stuff for that chapter. But then like one of the programmers, Ken St. Andre, it was just like, I would send him questions via email and he's like, Pat, I don't think you really know what it was like to be a video game developer in the eighties. And I'm like, Ken, I don't know what it was mm-hmm. like to be like, that's why I'm, that's why we're here. This is why we're having the conversation. And he was just like, kind of like, Oh, well, I don't, I don't know why anyone in their thirties would give a crap about wasteland, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, Oh my God. Like I'm trying to explain to you that you've had a huge impact on the video game industry. That seems almost like the kind of subject, and I'm not a professional interviewer by any means. So tell me if I'm wrong here, but that almost seems like the kind of subject that makes you believe that there has to be a story. There has to be a reason he is so oh, yeah. against talking about it or or how is he so disconnected from games now does he does he not know what fallout is i mean is there something yeah. disconnecting there that's that's very interesting it was just basically like you know oh you know it was just like it was a really cool game for its time it sold two hundred fifty thousand copies like it's not a big deal and i'm like do you understand that like if a game in the 80s sold two hundred fifty thousand copies it's like a game selling like 10 million copies now you know especially for the pc you know so it's like I it, it it took some cajoling like he was one of those guys that it took some like cajoling just to and like rephrasing questions and stuff but then like once I once I got him going he gave me great answers like I love the stuff that he gave me but um most of the people here like I said in the preface like uh to discuss their projects and to swoon you and that's totally like me trying to channel um Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society, you know, like uh, good writing is supposed to like connect. You're supposed to connect with the person, you know, and I just felt like all of these games, like big, small, indie, cult, classic, like they all had like something that could draw you in because I, I felt like in one way or another that they were all timepieces, that they were all like extremely representative of the time that they were released. It's like Night Trap is considered one of the worst and most controversial games of all time. But it's like if the game came out when it was originally supposed to be released, it could have changed video games entirely. Right, right, because it was because it was it was supposed to come out in like eighty seven or something, and it didn't, yeah. didn't end up coming out till ninety two or three. Is that right? Or maybe yeah, even four? Yeah. Um, so it's like it's like imagine if Super Mario Brothers, the original, came out in nineteen ninety one instead of nineteen eighty five. Right, and to put some context into it too, gamers today get pissed if a game is 
six months delayed. I mean, because yeah. you you can tell, uh, just graphically speaking, you can tell a game is six mm-hmm. months old, you know, today. Oh, yeah. And so imagine a game years and years old. And, and not only that, but and maybe this is perhaps one of the benefits. It was such a different medium that it was trying to explore or a different way to interact that it was trying to explore that – it was almost impossible for it to look dated because it was there was never a a way to compare it to see how mm-hmm. how it would be dated, you know. Yeah, that was that was a really really interesting chapter, and that's one that I, I remember walking into my video rental store as a kid, and and that game being on sort of the end cap, the gondola of things. It was one of the first things you saw. Um, but this same rental store was also the rental store that that would. Uh, file the many faces of death films um, yeah wow uh-huh. in with the horror because they didn't know what it was so yeah. uh, so as a kid imagine trying to just rent a fun horror movie and, and renting many faces of death it was it was oh uh, yeah traumatic but i think it, it worked out for me um, watching people eat uh monkey hands with a spoon yep. that's interesting uh, yeah it, it changed <laughs> I, me. I remember those it changed me. yeah oh yeah you know, you mentioned that a lot of the developers seemed that they were sort of hungry for this platform. They kind of wanted this platform. But conversely, and maybe sort of antagonistically, uh, gaming is as popular as it's ever been. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, developers seem to have a hungry audience already. Did you find that the example you gave me with Wasteland um, was uh, happened more often than you thought, that maybe developers uh, weren't as eager to kind of tell their story? Or- no, no. I think Ken... Ken was the only person that kind of like I think he I think he more downplayed his role mm. in video game history. That's what I think it was. I don't think he was antagonistic. I think he was more like, well, do you really want like why would you really want to talk <laughs> to me? You know, and it, that's what it took me like trying to explain to him like how important like wasting ended up becoming and how important Fallout is and things like that. So most of them were, all of them, wanted to tell their story and this is the thing there's you just you nailed it right on the head before when you said that video games are more popular now than they've ever been but um let me ask you a question who created grand theft auto i'm not gonna say rockstar but i don't know who but a lot of people (laughs) but that's the thing yeah again you you nailed it everyone (laughs) would go rockstar Mm -hmm. and you're like no there was a guy in australia that was like, bro, like we're gonna make like this city simulator, and you can like totally work, like have like this whole story within this city, moving traffic, blah 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 blah, blah all this. And you're a huge gamer; you have your own podcast. You don't know who did it. <laughs> well, then you also got to think who, not not necessarily who created Grand Theft Auto, but who created the bug that caused cops and robbers or whatever the game was originally called mm-hmm. to then be t- yep. changed into uh grand theft auto you know that guy who had an yep. accident i'm sure if you went back and asked him like you know can you do you realize your contribution he's like yeah i contributed because i was bad at my job i, I had a buggy game and, and that contributed mm-hmm. and made this just to give you a little bit of an exclusive um grand theft auto the original grand theft auto will be in the sequel to the minds behind the games nice so, I was definitely going to ask a bit about of a sequel here in a little bit. Yeah, so that, that's I, I've, cool. I've already got thirty three games. That's so. insane. <laughs> and I got two more. I got two more today. So I got Maximum Carnage and Die Hard trilogy. Um, so yeah, I kind of want to talk a little bit about. I, I want to stay on the idea of like this being a platform for developers because you did say in the preface to the book, you know, in the end, you wanted this book to be about creating a platform for developers to discuss their projects. Um, and you kind of mentioned uh, a little bit about – I'm going to keep going back to this Wasteland example because it's so interesting to me as it obviously was to you where there was just one guy who said, I don't, I don't know that I should really – that you should care about what, I, what I've done. And I know that yeah. at, the, at the birth of video games, that was probably more of a common thing because creators and developers themselves weren't, weren't 
promoted. Uh, they weren't really given any sort of credits or anything like that, partly as a way to guard against poaching other companies poaching their developers and that sort of thing. But then, um, you know, Warren Robinette did his whole adventure Easter egg thing and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I think, opened people's eyes to, hey, we're creators, we're developers, that sort of thing. Um, and I think sometimes... It's at least to me anyway. Sometimes you almost can kind of feel bad about uh, about creators not given enough creative freedom to really see through a project that they really want to see through. Um, and so, in a roundabout way, I'm kind of bringing this to Mutant League Football, which is a game that I really, really loved as a kid. And in your book, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Medheim is quoted, the creator of it, is quoted as saying he knew what Mutant League Hockey, which was the game after Mutant League Football, was supposed to be and could mm-hmm. have been. And so he was always sad and disappointed with that project. It, it, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but because it didn't get to see, um, it didn't get to see what it what it could have been, um, mm-hmm. and so I'm almost wondering if your interviews, do you feel like that they almost felt like a sense of catharsis, like they could actually finally tell these stories that that sort of have been grinding away at them for you know 40 years. Absolutely, one of the questions that I always ask during these interviews is, "What's wrong on the Wikipedia page for this game?" Or "What's what's something about this game that nobody knows?" And I, I, that's how a lot of the really good stories for this uh, for this book have come out. And it's like I found out I found out so much information. I thought I knew a lot about the video game industry before. I found out so much more. And then like even I was talking to a developer that I'm using for the uh, sequel. And uh, he's worked with uh, Michael Menheim, and he told me that there was supposed to be a Mutant League basketball. And I was like, what? That would have been amazing. Oh, my. And he's like, yeah, dude. He's like, it got canceled. I'm like, oh, my God. So it's like, yeah, I definitely feel that these guys felt like, you know what, people are interested. And I I explained to them that there are people that are interested in your story, even if they don't know it yet. So I think that's a big thing because again, if I say who played Captain America in the last Avengers movie, you know, you know, it's like if I say who wrote Romeo and Juliet, you know, if I say who sang Thriller, you know, but spent a lot more time in your childhood if you're a gamer playing these games. So why don't you know the names of these people? Mm -hmm. Why don't you know about the things that influenced them that made these games? It's like there's no excuse for it. I'm trying to create that platform so somebody could I, I would love for somebody to come up to me one day and just repeat something from the chapter verbatim to me. So I can go, Oh my god, like I love you. You know? Because it's like when I worked at NBC, I remember covering like the NFL and the NHL and stuff and I I remember a game Tony Romo was just he was awful. And uh I had written something about like the stats in, in, in the game. Like he threw like the least amount of yards like by a Dallas Cowboys quarterback in that round of the playoffs since like blah 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 and then i was in the elevator and tony dungy repeated it and i was like can i ask because i was in the elevator with tony dungy and i was like can i ask you a question like where did you hear that he's like oh i just read it on on you know nbc and i was like yeah i wrote that he was like oh that was great he goes i didn't even know that blah 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 so it's like i kind of want to start that conversation with the video game industry i want people to go you know Oh, you know, um, Mutant League football got cut short. Its development cycle got cut short. It could have been so much more. And you know what? Mutant League football doesn't use the same engine as Madden. Like everyone thinks that it does and blah, 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 blah. Like I want that conversation to be more open. I want us to get so much more geekier about video game history than we are right now. Because we just play the games and then we throw them out. And and we have this kind of culture now 
with with kids and it's like i hate going to gamestop and seeing kids trade in games that they bought when they were like eight nine years old and every time i see it happen i'm like i want you to understand that like you're gonna regret it and they're like no i'm not i'm never gonna play it anymore and i'm like i play nhl face off 99 like once every like three weeks like just a game just because i remember the things that were going on in my life at that time every time i play and the type of person that i was and the type of person that i wanted to be in 1999 and like those are memories that you could never ever throw out and replace like those games are a part of you and now, now you're going to part with them for 75 cents so you can get like some money so you could pay for add-ons in Fortnite. it doesn't make any sense to me yeah but think about it this way though you know someone gives up a game that they are currently not quite interested in. Maybe it'll find a home on someone's shelf who really will oh, appreciate yeah. it. You know, it might it absolutely. might happen. Why not? Absolutely. I, I would imagine that you probably nerded out crazy uh, during your interview uh, with. Uh, and I'm and I'm sorry, I failed to to know the guy's name off the top of my head. But for the uh, NHL PA ninety three game. Oh yeah, yeah, Michael Brook. Michael Brook. When he talked about um, how how involved the National Hockey League got when you started when he started uh, scoring and ranking the players and yeah. how that was, <laughs> I never really thought about that in in terms of, I don't know, like wh- how, how did you feel like getting those questions back? Cause I can imagine that you were probably really thinking, you know, this is good stuff. That was a phone interview. And like, um, Oh man, I just had my, both of my hands like under my chin, like a five-year-old, like, <laughs> like by the fire, having your grandpa, your grandfather, like tell you a story. And, um, Michael Brook is an amazing guy. Um, he's confirmed also for the second book. Nice. He's going to give me the uh, inside stories behind the first Madden and the first FIFA. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But um, yeah, hearing those stories for the first time, like from from him, out of all people, was so important to me. Like as a journalist, but also as like a gamer, um, it was just cool because that's the thing now. Now. EA releases, you know, their ratings and everyone everyone is kind of like in the same area. Like crappy players are like a 77, you know, <laughs> and it's like if if you were a 77 in an NHL PA 93 or an NHL 94, that was a damn good rating. Mm-hmm. You know, because there were players rated 20 and 1 and 2 and 4, you know, and 7 in NHL PA 93 and NHL 94. So those guys like they they started like this whole process, like Michael Brook was the guy that went to EA and was like, you know what? I think we should release a new hockey game and a new football game every year. Yeah. And EA, EA was like, no, nobody would buy it. And he was like, yeah, they would, you know? So what was interesting about that chapter too, is because the logic that he was championing was video game players want to see updated rosters. They want to see sort of yeah. their current favorites, but then conversely, he, I think it was him, he made the exact same argument that, hey, player rosters don't matter as long as there's fights in the game. This was specifically for NHL uh, games. <laughs> and so it was almost like speaking kind of two to... He, he knew both were important, and depending mm-hmm. on the audience he was talking to, he was like, I yeah. know how I need to frame this. Uh, it was interesting. That's the thing, too, with the, with the hockey game. So many people – like, hockey is kind of like the redheaded stepchild of professional sports in the United States. You know, like – it's like watching the NHL is akin to like playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's like people don't like to admit that they're huge hockey fans, you know? Um, and I know so many people that their invitation to professional hockey is those mm-hmm. NHL games because they're so goddamn fun. And Brooke knew that if he took fighting out of the game, that that would, that would hurt 
how many people that haven't played hockey before would be willing to jump into the game. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, I'm not a huge sports fan, but I remember playing Blades of Steel on the NES, and the mm-hmm. reason for, and the reason I love <laughs> exactly that voice, man. How how could you cram all that voice into such a small amount of data? The the fights in that game, there were fights in that game. That's why I played it, and even to this day, I can find myself if I'm flipping through the channels, and there happens to be a hockey game on, which is kind of a rare occurrence here in the states, as you alluded mm-hmm. to. But yeah, um, I will kind of pause for a second and say. I, I kind of remember this, and I really will make that connection from Blades of Steel. Like that's no joke. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Max Payne, a game that I have a lot of, a lot of uh, affinity for. I really, really like it. And the lead designer of the game, Petri Harvitheo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll You're work. Good. Uh, You're you good. know what? We'll, we'll, we'll say that I pronounced that correctly. Uh-huh. Um, he quoted in, uh, he had a quote in there that said, the reason we went with a comic book style narrative sequences was primarily because we didn't have the money to spend to do proper cinematics and motion capture. The comic book approach ended up working great, though, and became quite a signature thing. And this, uh, the undertone here is that limitations breed creativity. It's the same way that sort of genre fiction writers might say, you know, I'm actually have to be more creative if I'm writing a horror novel, for example, because I have to be creative within constraints. And that's what they kind of did here. I didn't know, especially with the older uh, games, the, the developers on the older games. Did you ever get a sense, and this is a terrible interview question because it's kind of yes or no, but uh, <laughs> did you ever get a sense that um, that the technology, as it becomes less limiting, that, that the developers sort of almost had a, a jealousy of these of, of the amount of technology that was available to these current-gen de- developers? Did they ever, I guess, make any sort of commentary regarding old versus new technology? Yeah, they did, but at the same time, too, it's like these guys were like absolute geniuses. It's like uh, I'm... Before our interview started, I told you like I'm I'm getting in, involved in the, in the uh, development scene right now, and uh, we, we talk about things like this all the time, like doing things with like uh, as little using as little like uh, data as possible, mm-hmm. and like trying to you know put a focus on storytelling rather than like making it look as sexy as possible. Like so, the things that a lot of these guys did with such tiny constraints. It says so much about their ability as a developer that I think like it says just as much about their ability as a developer as as like somebody that has unlimited resources can do. It's like uh, Mike Posehn who did Desert Strike and that's featured in the book. Like he used basically every single like line of code that he possibly could. You know, um, Gary Kitchen was famous for like filling up the cartridge which with as much information as possible and like getting the system like he programmed Donkey Kong on the Atari 2600 and like just for that game to play properly on the Atari 2600 was uh, like almost impossible. And his, uh, his, his Donkey Kong sprite is not sexy at all, (laughs) but that game plays like it plays 100% like Donkey Kong, you know? So I think, uh, it's not really like a jealousy. It's more like, this is what we had to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's what we did. We didn't have an option, but they know too at the same time, like that without them doing that, there'd be no like God of War Mm -hmm. now, like without Pitfall, there's no Tomb Raider, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's like, these guys are very, they were very conscious of, they knew that they were doing something unique and, and something special. Like they, these guys invented the industry. Many of them that I spoke to, like Gary Kitchen and David Crane and Howard Scott Warshaw, and those guys, they were the they were the ones. Mark Termel, NBA Jam, like he created a game that totally killed the pinball industry. Like nobody wanted to play pinball anymore when they could play NBA Jam. You know, 
So it's like these guys, they, a lot of them are still in the industry and in different ways to, you know, so it's like Mark Turmel makes a lot of mobile games now, you know, so, um, and he, he said it on a Reddit, uh, AMA, uh, a couple of months ago that a lot of the things that he did that made his arcade games so addicting and so much addicting is the wrong word, negative connotation there, but so much fun to play and have such replayability. He uses them when he creates mobile games. So the same reason why you couldn't stop playing NBA jam when you were 13 is the same reason why your mother can't stop playing candy crush. There's definitely like a fraternity among these guys. They're all super unique and they all have similar personalities. I wouldn't say like, um, there was a jealousy. It was just like, what do we have to do to like make the best game possible with what we have? It's very similar to journalism because journalism isn't necessarily how do I tell the best story? It's how do I tell the best story in the time that I have for my editor and in the space that he's given me? You know, so Max Payne and Incredible Hulk uh, Ultimate Destruction is in a similar spot because that game had a shoestring budget and they had to do the same thing. They had to like, there was there's like no voice acting in Hulk Ultimate Destruction and the thing that, keeps you playing hulk ultimate destruction is the gameplay engine is so awesome that you, you're actually hulk and you're just breaking and throwing shit all over the place so max Payne, that whole noir storytelling device that lends itself perfectly to the comic book scene you know guys like frank miller like made millions of dollars and made themselves pop culture icons doing that so and they were lucky because sam lake is such an amazing writer so they they got you know when lightning strikes you just go with it and they were very lucky in that sense where they were 40 you know a bunch of guys uh making making games in a basement and they they were hoping that max Payne sold fifty thousand copies and it ended up selling over eight million as you talked through that it reminded me of of a previous interview i had done so i don't know if there'll be a question buried in here or not but uh bear with me the the idea of of technology of the limits of technology becoming sort of a trademark of the actual game um it also i I, so i was interviewing uh ian dallas who is the creative director of what remains of edith finch was a fantastic game if, if you haven't played it i was asking him some questions about what i perceived as an intentional sort of thematic consistency with with something he was doing which was essentially at the end of each scene there would be sort of this uh this this rise to the sunlight sort of halo kind of effect that almost mm-hmm. like looked as though this person was um, you know, entering the afterlife kind of thing. And that was that was thematically um, consistent with what the game was doing. And so I asked him about this and, and me coming from I have, a, I have an English degree. So I have this this literary background and I kind of wanted to see meaning in everything. And so I asked him about it and he said, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he said, no, we were just really good at making halo effects. Like <laughs> that was the reason. <laughs> and so I was yeah. like, wow, this thing, I, I looked way too deeply into this thing that I thought was intentional. And he's like, no, not not really. Sorry to burst your bubble, but we were just good at that. And so we did that. Um, so I don't know. Again, not a question in there, but it was kind of interesting that we can, that as gamers, or at least as uh, intentionally informed gamers, we can sort of see things that may not necessarily be there. Well, see, the, the creator of the Wonder Boy series he said something beautiful like at the end of the chapter where he said something like along the lines of you know after you after he releases the game that's not his anymore and whatever you whatever whatever experiences you've had and whatever feelings you've experienced while you're playing the game regardless of what they are are true and they're real so it's like super bruce lee kind of you know like (laughs) but so yeah so as much as like the developer can say yeah we were just good at making halos you're listen you're right you know, if if it had that feeling to you, 
it's you, you know, it's like, I've had so many conversations with people about like what moments in, you know, video game history mattered the most to them and why, and you get so many conflicting answers. And then you find out more about the person, like people that are affected by like Aerith's uh, death in Final Fantasy seven. And they're like, Oh, well, I just broke up with my girlfriend. She kind of looked like my girlfriend. I'm like, Oh my God. You know, but it's like, so that's the thing. When you play a game, your experiences, it's like you're, you're Vulcan mind melding with the game. You know, it's so much more than just like a movie. It happens a lot in movies too, where people see things and da da da. But it's still like, this is the story that they're telling you. You know, novels allow you to kind of like, kind of imagine things as they happen, so you can kind of put your own spin on things. And then video games is just that on steroids. You know, so that's one of the reasons why I felt like it was so important to talk to these developers because so many people have so many different feelings about these things. So I felt like there needed to be better context so somebody could go, oh, yeah, well, that, yeah, the way I felt was exactly the way the developer felt. Or, oh, my God, I was so off, but, you know, it doesn't matter because I still love the game. Um, One thing you actually mentioned earlier um, that this would actually be a sequel uh, or that there will be a sequel to this book. I kind of want to know, like, what will a sequel allow that this book didn't allow? Is it just more content? And and I use just in quotes because that's a great thing. (laughs) But is there something else that you kind of hope to uh, get with a sequel that you weren't able to do with this book? Well, the thing is, too, it's like since it's a number two, I want to get a couple of more current games. A lot of the games featured in this uh, book were 8-bit – well – Atari 2600, 8-bit, 16-bit, and there are quite a few PlayStation 1 games already confirmed for the second book. So it's like this book was kind of like my childhood in a way, and then this, the second book is more like, yeah, I'm 15, 16 now, and I'm playing Loaded, and I'm, I'm shooting people and blood splatting all over the place. And uh, it's 1997, and games are hyper-violent, and, you know, the best wrestling games that ever came out came out during this time. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's going to grow up a little bit. And, like, um, I think in terms of reporting, the uh, the ante has been upped a bit because the loaded I would have loved loaded to be featured in the first book and uh, they just didn't, the the developers didn't back to me until after the book was released and then all of a sudden they were like oh well we got this person we got that person so now I have like six sources for that chapter so it's going to be a really beefy chapter and it's going to be different because I have to manage six or you know five or six voices in the chapter so it'll be really cool how all those voices interact to tell the story of the game. So there's going to be more current games in there. The storytelling is going to be a little bit more uh, meatier, but I want to continue to tell these types of stories. So um, the games will be a little bit more current, but it's, it's more like what I want to do in a perfect world is I would release like five or six of these books um, over the next like 10, 12 years, like every two years, put out another one. And then after a while, I could say, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. Um, those five or six books, I have 40 Genesis, Sega Genesis games. Let's just do an like let's do an anthology and put all the Sega Genesis games in one book. And then what I'll do is I'll go out and I'll interview like I'll cherry pick five amazing Genesis games and add those to the book. So then it'll be just a Genesis book and then a Super Nintendo book and so on and so on and so on. Like this is something that um, once I started doing, I felt like I fell in love with it and I feel like it's something that like I want to continue to do for like the rest of my writing career. Well, I, I for one hope that you do in fact to do that uh, because it's, it's, it's a fantastic book. 
Um, everyone should definitely go out there and, and pick it up. Uh, fans of video games, not fans of video games, fans of just history in general. I think that's also probably an audience that's worth, tar- worth, worth talking about because video games are becoming part of our own history. I really, really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to talk with me. Um, it's been awesome talking with you. Um, if we were closer geographically, I would, I would take you out for a beer. But uh, if, you ever, <laughs> if you ever find yourself in the Kansas City re- realm for whatever reason, uh, definitely uh, hit me up. So I, I appreciate it very much. Is there, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share? And also I should ask, um, where can listeners find you online should you wish to be found? Yeah, I definitely wish to be found. Like I'm on Twitter at Review Fix. I'm on Instagram at Patrick Hickey Jr. I'm on Facebook at Patrick Hickey Jr. Um, the book is available on Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, but also to um, if you go to my official website, patrickhickeyjr.com, you can order the book directly through me. And uh, what I'll do is uh, I get the order. It happened today. Um, somebody ordered the book and I emailed them right away. And I was like, do you want me to autograph it? Um, is there any like, do you want some bookmarks? Like I try and make like uh, make a connection with the person reading like uh, the person that bought the book is from Montreal. So I'm looking through like my uh, hockey card collection to see if I could put in a couple of Canadians like hockey cards in there like I do stupid stuff like that just because I've been to book signings before and it's it's kind of like a factory like next 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 and like I spoke at the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo a couple of weeks ago and I sold a couple of books there and I just I made sure that I shook their hands I looked them in the eyes we had a nice conversation all of them and that's that's kind of like what I want to be I I, I never want to be like one of those people that uh, doesn't connect with the people that you know he's affected in one way or another I'm an educator so it's like I I have that in me like I want to impact people in a positive way and I'm willing to put the time in to get to know people um I'm a, a huge proponent of uh working horizontally like a lot of people if they want to grow like their Instagram and their Twitter and this and that they'll go to people with thousands and millions of followers and ask them questions and those people won't even answer them so I'm the type of person where like I look around and if somebody has like 50 more followers than me like what did you do to get 50 more followers than me you know and I want to start a conversation with them and I want to grow with them and I want to create a network a community of people that all have like-minded goals and want to grow and stuff so um I will say too that there are a lot of great video game authors out there people like leonard herman who wrote phoenix mm-hmm. he's he's gonna write the forward to my sequel and like i told you brett weiss you know um who uh, just finished the uh, super nintendo uh Onibus, which is basically uh it's a two volume encyclopedia style reference book that has like um uh, information on the games and then there's like a section where a game journalist or a developer or or somebody like that tells how the game affected them it's an amazing thing um so like there's a lot of people out there doing great work that don't have 500,000 followers on Twitter. You know, that are, and that's the thing we live in this type of society where that that's the first thing that we do. You know, so you find out that somebody wrote something or or uh, a singer, you know, you hear their song and then you you go on their SoundCloud or whatever and they have 500 followers and you're like, "Oh, whatever, man." <laughs> but, like you could be missing out on something important. So, you know, I'm the type of person now where like I'm I'm really starting to grow all of my social media platforms and things like that. And I think these are stories that um, young kids should read if they want to get involved in the video game industry. These are stories that like people that aren't interested in the video game industry but want to know more should read. If you're a hardcore gamer, this is like this is like a book that can go like in every room 
in your house. Like you, you're in the bathroom, you can read a chapter. <laughs> you know, right before bed, you can read a chapter. You know, it's like you're at the dog park, you know, and you don't want to watch your dog sniffing another dog's ass. You can read a chapter. <laughs> you know, so it's like that's kind of like that's the that's the narrative and that's like the conversation that I want to get started. Like, video games are geeky, yes, but every every form of pop culture is geeky and the thing is like video game history hasn't been given the opportunity to to get as entertaining as it possibly could so there's a lot of great books out there and i'm just hoping that like people give me an opportunity to become one of those books because i mean i've been a journalist for almost 15 years and this is like the best thing that i've ever done i've interviewed people like philip seymour hoffman and uh, channing tatum and paul walker and the ultimate warrior and daniel bryan and you know all these cool people and it's like this is the thing that at the end of the day i want to hang my hat on that people remember me for Heard it here first. The Minds Behind the Games interviews with cult classic video game developers is better than watching your dog sniff another dog's butt. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you again so much. Uh, this has been really, really awesome. Um, I, uh, Depending on where you're actually listening to this, um, definitely check out the cartridgeclub.org which is where this uh, is probably going to be posted, but we'll figure out where that's actually going to be posted. If you're if you're listening to it on the Masters of Unlocking podcast, then definitely check out cartridgeclub.org and vice versa. So uh, thank you again so much, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I really enjoy the book. Everyone should go out there and buy it. Uh, highly, highly, highly recommend it. 